As you start to reach more people, things start to feel more complex. There's more to do and more to keep track of, and it starts to actually take time away from creating content. I felt this struggle personally. The more creator science grew, the more it felt like I was dropping the ball. So I did something about it. I built a set of rock solid systems, all in Notion to support the business as we grew. And it worked like a charm. I've now taken my personal Notion setup and productized it. It's called Creator HQ, and it's the complete operating system that you need for your creator business. I built Creator HQ to be an all-in-one workspace designed to save you more time, create more content, and drive more revenue. By leveraging Creator HQ, we are publishing more than we ever have, and we're nearing $1 million in annual revenue because of it. It brings all of your data and processes into one place with custom-built dashboards to reduce friction in managing tasks, creating content, and collaborating with your team. I've seriously spent more than three years building this, and now you can have the same systems that I use right out of the box. In the lab, one of our members just posted, I have spent the last few weeks diving into Creator HQ, learning how it works, and making it my own. This is the first time in a while that I felt this organized and filled with hope that I can find a workflow that will work for me with my whole business. This is gold. I will definitely be giving a testimonial for this badass product. If you're new to Notion, don't worry. I've included a ton of specific tutorials to help you learn how to use Notion generally and Creator HQ specifically. I've never seen another Notion product integrate tutorials like we have here. More than 300 other creators are already using Creator HQ, and I am not exaggerating when I say I would be lost without this system. Creator HQ is what keeps the trains running over here. As a podcast listener, I'm giving you my best price. You can get 10% off using the promo code podcast at checkout. Just head to creatorhq.co to watch the video and learn more. That's creatorhq.co and use promo code podcast to save 10%. So I got my financial friends to teach inside my online school. And at first, I remember it was um, 10 bucks a month and now 30 bucks a month for the online school. We have 40,000 students and we make like a million bucks a month. That's crazy. 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 Welcome to Creative Elements, a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. Hello, welcome back to Creative Elements. Thanks for choosing to spend a little bit of your day here with me. I'm excited to spend it with you. At the beginning of the COVID lockdown, my girlfriend Mallory suggested that the two of us watch the newest season of Queer Eye on Netflix. And if you're somehow not familiar with Queer Eye already, it's a show where a team of five gay professionals called the Fab Five give lifestyle and fashion makeovers to their guests, usually these like amazing people who are down on their luck or could just use a helping hand. And it's actually marketed now as, quote, more than a makeover because they really do more to generally uplift these guests and help them out. Now, let me tell you, if you haven't already watched this show, it's exactly what your quarantine needs. It is the most uplifting show. They go above and beyond to help their guests out. And a perfect example of that is in the fourth episode of season five, the Fab Five help a man named Tyreek. And part of their approach was to help him improve his credit score and financial situation. And to do that, they sat down with Tiffany, the budget nista, Aliche. And as I'm watching this episode, I realized that she would be a fantastic guest on this show. And of course, I also asked Tiffany about the Fab Five. 
I need to know if those guys are even more amazing in real life than they are on TV because there's a serious hole in my life now that I've watched all those episodes. <laughs> yes, they are. Well, I only got to meet I only got to meet one, but he was seriously amazing. And that is a huge relief because I don't know what I would do if they were not. Okay. Anyway, let's get back to the guest at hand here. Tiffany the Budget Nista Aliche is an author, speaker, and founder of the Live Richer Academy. Since 2014, the Budget Nista's Live Richer Challenge movement has helped more than 1 million women from more than 100 countries pay off over $75 million in debt. They've purchased homes and transformed the way that they think about their finances. These women that participate in the movement call themselves dream catchers. Her financial advice has also been featured in the New York Times, the Today Show, Good Morning America, CNN, Time, and Forbes. She also blogs about personal finance for the Huffington Post and co-hosts an award-winning podcast called Brown Ambition. But before all of that, she was a preschool teacher. I became a preschool teacher because I knew I wanted to live a life of service. I saw a documentary with Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, and who doesn't love Mr. Rogers? And I just remember thinking like, I want to be like Mr. Rogers, which is so odd for like a (laughs) 19-year-old. That's how I was. And so I watched that. I saw that in the documentary, he had this plaque on his wall that said, the purpose of life is to live a life of service. And like a light bulb went on. And I said, huh, I was in school for business and I was in my last year and I realized I hated my my corporate internships. And I thought, oh, it's kind of too late to turn back now. Um, so I decided after graduating, I was going to become a teacher because that was a life of service, which I did. But I also remember thinking, I want to live a life of service, but I don't want to be broke. How do you manage those two things? And so I, I realized, well, one, b- being a preschool teacher, I lived frugally and then I invested and I really said no to the things that didn't mean that much to me. So I could say yes to the things that did like travel and buying my home and, and, and having fun with my friends. And even as a preschool teacher, her friends looked up to her as the one who really had her finances figured out. So much so that even when she fell prey to a credit card scam, her friends continued to look to her for advice. So what happened was I was living that life. I was helping my friends with their financial issues. And then when I hit my financial roadblocks, even though I was struggling, my friends were like, yeah, but you're struggling with style, Tiffany, because you seem to be working it out despite the fact of losing everything. I've lost everything and I have not moved the needle. And so that's how the budget needs to start. It was like, look, I've messed up. I can show you what I'm doing to unmess up my mess up. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, including some financial questions that I get asked quite a bit. We talk about Tiffany's financial education, the scam that left her with $35,000 in credit card debt, how she paid off that debt, the way she thinks about home buying, savings, and retirement, and how her focus on service helped her build a multi-million dollar business. As always, I'll be sharing some more about Tiffany in our private Facebook group this week. Just search for Creative Elements listeners on Facebook. And if you have thoughts throughout this episode, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at jklaus. But now, let's hear from Tiffany. My history as it relates to money really starts me elementary school learning about personal finance at home with my parents and having day-to-day lessons that 
I totally thought were normal. I'm like, so you don't do Thursday night money class? Hmm, interesting, you know? <laughs> and so, um, but yeah, learning things like how much the mortgage was, watching my mom food shop and having her negotiate and then her having us negotiate. My father doing the bills at the dining room table and then letting us use his like accountant's calculator with the paper that came out of the back. I remember I used to love that thing. What a gift from your father and your parents. Sounds like your mom was involved too, to help you guys look at money as just kind of a fact of life and a tool. This was commonplace for me. So my first introduction to money wasn't from a place of fear. It was curiosity and interest. And we didn't have a lot of money coming up. So even in that, my parents were really good at not presenting it in such a way that made my sisters, my four sisters and I feel worried about money because they could say something like, hey, mom lost her job. And, you know, that means Christmas. We're going to actually open our presents in January. I remember that actually happening and we weren't freaked out. We were just like, OK, because it was open conversation. And then fast forward to I want to say my mid 20s, I literally just did everything my dad told me to do when it came to my money. So I was financially perfect because my dad, I'm sure by then, I don't know, maybe he was in his 40s or like early 50s or and when I was in my mid 20s. And so on paper, I was like as financially sound as like a 50 year old because <laughs> I was just doing what he said. Amazing. Yeah. Like I had a $40,000 saved. I bought myself a condo when I was 25. I was a preschool teacher then, so I wasn't even making a ton of money. I bought my first car cash. My dad took me to the auction. I bought for $5,500. I remember it was a Nissan Altima. It was black and I loved that little car and my insurance was like 60 bucks a month because the car, I owned it and I just had liability. I remember my rent was 550 because my sister and I moved out together, my oldest sister. And we moved out when I was 23 and we split the rent. So I was doing all the things that I was told to do. So by 26, I bought the condo. And it probably wasn't the best idea because that was right before the recession was coming. But who knew? I didn't. I wasn't aware, right, that a recession was looming. But I do remember distinctly that even my realtor and the bank were trying to pressure me to purchase a home that I knew I couldn't afford. Like I knew based upon my budget that I could afford a home that cost no more than like, I think like uh, 250. But they were trying to convince me like, oh, no, no, you can afford a home that's $300,000 or more. And I was like, I'm looking at my budget and it doesn't it doesn't equate. You know, so I would say until 26, my finances were perfect. I didn't have any issue with them. My relationship with money was solid. And then I did what kids are apt to do, which is to kind of go out on their own and totally screw up everything your parents have taught you. (laughs) (laughs) It's about time. 26. It's about time to make a huge mistake. (laughs) Exactly. So I went from no debt because I'd paid off the little bit of undergraduate debt that I had because I I commuted and my parents helped out. And so I didn't have much in undergraduate um, debt. So I had paid that off. My credit card debt had been paid in full every month. So I was debt free. And then, you know, by 26, I had my student loan debt for my master's. So that was like $52,000. But I wasn't freaked out because people borrow money for school. And then I also had my $220,000 debt for my condo, but I wasn't freaked out because that's a mortgage. But I was freaked out later when I decided to start investing because I thought I'm in a good space. It's time to learn to invest. And instead of investing, I invested in a scam that left me $35,000 in credit card debt. Tiffany talks pretty in depth about this credit card fraud on Choose FI episode 240. She met a con artist she calls Jake the Liar, who convinced her that he had an opportunity she could invest in by using funds from her credit cards. That investment opportunity didn't actually exist, 
but Jake had made off with tens of thousands of Tiffany's dollars before she realized that. So I went from owing nothing to feeling like I owed everything within a matter of just a couple of years. And I would say by 27, 28, I was like, yeah, things are not looking good. By 29, I'd lost my job as a teacher. I'd been a teacher for 10 years. And so now I owed all this money and I had no money coming in. And the recession was here. And so many of us had no job. So it was just externally, it was depressing. And then internally, it was depressing. And that's when I had my first kind of bout with money sucks. That's what I was telling myself. Money is hard. Money sucks. Something that you talked about there when you're talking about uh, your master's debt, your student loan debt, and then your condo debt. And then you kind of put this credit card scam and this debt into seemingly a different bucket. So I'd love to pause here and talk about is there good debt? Is there like okay debt? How do you think about debt? And is it all created equal or not? So I don't believe in that good debt, bad debt term, right? Because I'm just like, who wants to owe anybody? Right. But I will say there, there's like, I, I'll call it like, I guess debt and bad debt. So the, I guess debt is like, I guess I have to go to school. I guess, I mean, I have to live somewhere, but ideally it would be awesome not to own anybody, mm-hmm. you know? And then there is bad debt, which is debt that the interest rate is oppressive. So double digits, you know, so 10%, 20%, 30%, you know, so that is terrible bad debt. And I guess that is student loans, your mortgage, even your car within reason. I mean, I know that there's some financial gurus that tell you buy everything in cash and that's cute. And it sounds great because I'm actually a cash girl. I'm debt free right now. My husband and I were able to purchase our home in cash because it was a foreclosure. I've never had a new car. I've always purchased every car I've had in cash, whether the car was $3,000 or $20,000. You know, I was able to purchase it in cash, but it's not realistic for most people. I don't like when I hear financial gurus. That's why I'm like, I'm not a financial guru. I'm like your financial girlfriend, right? I don't like when I hear this black and white version of money because it's so limiting. Most of us live in the gray. And so I don't believe in that black and white approach. I believe that I like to teach to the gray because that's where most of us live. So, yeah. So I would say, yeah, with, with that, I, it's not ideal because you're really ideally the number you're wanting to keep an eye out for is your net worth. And your net worth is what you own, what puts money into your pocket assets minus what you owe, what takes money out of your pocket liabilities. So the more you own, And the less you owe, the better. So that's why I said debt is never a good thing because it's something that you owe and it lowers your net worth, which is really the number that you kind of look at to see the health of your overall finances. I love that perspective. And I love owning the fact that so much of everything in life is in the gray. Like, Mm -hmm. of course, we know that the best case is this. And we also know that almost nobody is doing the perfect thing or following the best case any percent of the time. Mm -hmm. When it comes to you bought a condo when it comes to home buying. Yeah. How does that affect your net worth? Is that an asset that is lifting your net worth? Or if you have a mortgage, is that, you know, something that is bringing you down as a liability? It's a mix. So some of what you, so what the the owning part is part of your assets. So let's just say, like I told you guys, I I, I bought this, the, the, the house that I live in now, and it was a foreclosure. So it's 50% off. So let's just say I had a mortgage right on the house and it was $400,000 the house is worth. I'm just making up numbers, but then we paid 200,000 and let's just say we had a $200,000 mortgage. So that 200,000 that we owe is on the liability side, but 
we have equity in that house. And so that equity that we own, the part of the house that we own is on the asset side. So net net, if we own 200,000 of the house, but we owe 200,000 of the house, basically the house is making our net worth, it doesn't make it increase or decrease because 200,000 minus 200,000 is zero. So your net worth is not moving with our current house, you know? So that's how you look at it when you're purchasing something that might be partially asset and liability. You put the part that you own on the own side and to put the part that you owe on the O side and then you subtract the two. So I think that when you're purchasing a house, everyone should think of purchasing a house as an investment. Too many people purchase a house and they're just like thinking of the emotional component. I want the kids to have a yard. I want to have a dog. I want to live next to mom and dad, whatever that looks like. It is one of the largest investments outside of like your education that you're going to make. So if I said right now, hey, Jay, you know, would you like to invest in, you know, 200, 300, $400,000 and it's a guaranteed loss? You would think I'm crazy, right. but that's what people do with their homes. It's like, no, let's, you know, let's be mindful. So there are a few ways to think about and, and when you're purchasing a home um, that it can be an asset. So it's finding a home that's undervalued. And some of the ways is like, you know, maybe the house, like our house needed um, some work, you know, so we, we knew that like, okay. The amount of money we put in for the work, the house is going to be worth more than that amount of money. You know, finding a house in a neighborhood that is that the neighborhood is transcending or or like moving upward, you know, because, you know, like, OK, the values of the homes here are growing, you know, or you might purchase a home like my parents live in a really nice neighborhood now where it's just a neighborhood. You, we know those cities and towns that are just always nice. You know, and so the housing prices have always gone up no matter what's going on externally, because this is this is just one of those nice neighborhoods. So being mindful of like, am I going to purchase this home that I'm going to live in? And is it going to appreciate being going up, go up in value? And if not, then maybe you want to look into like a multifamily house. You know, you get two family, you live on one side and, and let your tenant pay the mortgage on the other. So there are many ways to look at your home and to navigate your home, your personal home as an investment. I bring it up because I'm in a season of life where me, my friends, everyone's thinking about like, is it time to stop renting and, and start investing in a home? And people have very strong views on both sides of this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, we live in the gray. Yes. <laughs> and it depends on people's uh, preferences. So um, before I move on from this topic, is there anything else that you would recommend to other people in the audience that are listening to this who are thinking, I've been renting for a long time. Am I just throwing money away in rent or should I be thinking about getting a mortgage? I will say this, that that home ownership in the United States of America is definitely one of the biggest cornerstones for wealth. Here's why. Because let's just say you're 25, you know, you purchase a house and, you know, you have that same house by the time you're 60, 70. There's a strong likelihood that that house has gone up in value, even though you didn't have to put that much in to start with that house, you know? So my parents bought the house they live in now when we were kids and they bought it for 250. That house is now worth about 750 or 700,000. That's why it can be a cornerstone for wealth because they didn't really have to invest in the market. They just bought one asset and because of the nature of where they purchased it, it went up in value. So I will say it certainly can help um, if that is your goal to grow wealth because now what they can do is they can sell the house and use the excess and, and, and live off some of that in their retirement. But, um, it's not, if not everyone purchases a house the right way. You can literally purchase a house that leaves you broker by the end. I would say up until the last recession, that was like the last cutoff of the 2008, 2009 recession was like the last cutoff when it was like, no, 
definitely get a house because that taught us yeah, not necessarily. You know, it taught us that like, uh, like I, I wish I would have known then that I would have gotten a mortgage that was quote unquote rentable, meaning that I had to move from my condo. My mortgage was 1660 and I could only rent out my condo for about $1,200. So that's something if I would have known, like if I had that condo, I could have rented the area, the, the, the rent that the area could bear was 1250. Then I could have rented out that condo and continue to pay my mortgage and not lost it to a foreclosure. So I say that, you know, buying a house is, is not a bad idea, but buying a house incorrectly definitely is. When we come back, Tiffany explains how she climbed back out of debt and how she recommends others can do the same right after this. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Last year, my wife and I started talking about her joining the business full time. This is a huge decision, not just for the business, but for our marriage. My wife, being the very smart and thoughtful woman that she is, suggested that we proactively sign up for therapy as a couple to help us communicate better before we started working together. It really helped us have better language to describe how we're feeling and listen to one another, which generally lowers the intensity of any conversation. Now, I had never been in therapy before, but here's something that I didn't expect. It didn't just help our dialogue, but it helped my inner monologue too. The way I understand my own experience has changed based on the tools that I got from therapy. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient, it fits your schedule, and you can be in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a short questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. They even make it easy to switch therapists if it doesn't feel like a fit. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash creator today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash creator. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters, featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several Podcast Movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event, not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. It's truly a unique event, and if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. Right now, tickets are available at super duper early bird pricing. And as a Creator Science listener, you can save $50 on top of that by visiting podcastmovement.com science. That's podcastmovement.com science. Welcome back to Creative Elements. When we left off, Tiffany had gone from perfect finances to grad school loan debt, mortgage debt, and $35,000 in credit card debt. So the budget Nista set out to fix her situation. 
So I started with the terrible debt, right? That is the credit card debt. And it's terrible because it was double figures. And so one of the things I did was, if you know you're about to experience financial trauma, like you're like, uh, I'm about to lose my job, I can tell. Pandemic, quarantine, just whatever. You just know you're about to lose your job. Before that happens, you want to look at your debt and reorganize it. Like I was like, okay, I'm about to lose my job. I'm not going to have the money to pay my mortgage before that late payment hits. Let me look at my credit card debt and reorganize it. And what I did was I did balance transfers because I had two cards where the interest rate was uh, pretty high, double figure. So like 10, 12, 13, 14, 15%. But I knew I still had good credit because I had not missed a payment yet. So I opened up two or three new balance transfer cards where I took my balance from the high interest rate cards and put it to my new low interest rate cards. And because my credit still was so good, I was able to get, I think one was almost like two years. I remember one particular was like a year at 0% interest. And then after that, 5% or something like that. And then another was like 15 months of 0% interest. And I was like, yes. So I transferred that money over. And the reason why you're wanting to pay less interest is that when you pay off debt, some of your money goes to actually what you owe and some of it goes toward fees and those fees are interest. So the more you can pay toward the debt you actually owe, the more actually you can pay down your debt faster. And so I was doing so helped tremendously. So even though I was on unemployment, I had to move back home with my parents. It took me about almost three years, but I paid off that $35,000 in credit card debt while mostly on unemployment because all of the money that I was paying toward the credit card debt was going toward the principal because I had gotten rid of the interest at least for the next 16 to 24 months. So that was what I did first. I made the decision that I had, I think my unemployment was like $2,200 a month. My mortgage was $1,660 and the rest of my bills added up to like a little over $2,000. And I said, well, who, who's not going to get paid? Mortgage, you're not going to get paid. I'm just going to have to suck that up. It is what it is. Student loans, thankfully, I can set you aside legally and, and not pay you. And so I'm going to focus on this credit card debt. And once I did, I was like, OK, that's a big burden off my shoulders. And then then I was going to focus on my student loan debt and be aggressive toward my student loan debt. Then a light bulb went on and I said, well, what's the desired outcome? And you should ask yourself this as you're listening. Is your desired outcome to be debt free or is your desired outcome to grow wealth? Mm, because debt freedom is not the same as wealth. And people will tell you in the hashtag debt-free community, yes, it is. I'm like, okay, well, you know who's debt-free? My four-year-old nephew, Roman, comes over every weekend. He eats cookies. He eats my, drinks my juice. He eats pizza every time he comes here. Roman doesn't have a mortgage, a car note. He doesn't have any bills. And Roman is still broke. He's still broke. And I, I tell people all the time, like, that debt-free should be a goal, not the goal. It feels like a spectrum, you know, mm -hmm. you go from in debt to debt free to yes. now wealthy. Yes. That's, that's not how some people think of it. No, most, a lot of people think of debt freedom as like the goal itself, as if when I'm debt free, somehow that's going to translate into wealth and it doesn't. And here's the thing too. I want you to focus on the wealth because in the wealth, you can come back for debt freedom. So I'll give an example of like how I took care of my, my uh, student loan. So I had the 52,000 forbearance, forbearance, forbearance for like years. And I said, instead of that money and that time and that energy I was putting toward paying down my credit card debt, I'm now going to pivot and put it toward growing my business. So year one in business, I think I made like 10, $15,000. Year two, maybe like 20 or 30,000. 
you're three, then like 50, then you're four, like 150. And you would think, oh, now's the perfect time to pay off the student loan debt. I said, not yet. Then you're like four or five, I made 500,000. And then, so as I'm growing, it wasn't until, despite the fact I had a seven figure business, then I was like, okay, now I can work on this student loan debt. And guess what? I didn't have to work on it for months and months and months. I went to my bank account and I wrote one check. So you see, like, so it wasn't necessarily even on the way to wealth. It was like I had grown wealth and I went back for debt freedom. That's such a interesting take. I hadn't, I've never thought about a process like that because a lot of people listening to this show, you know, whether they are debt free or not, they're probably pretty close and they're, they're looking for a similar lifestyle to what you have now. You know, they want to build equity in their own business. They want to build their own products. They want to get to a place where they're working on their own things because they want to work on their own things. I hadn't thought about the process of, well, you can invest in that business. You can invest Mm -hmm. in yourself and believing in yourself and then yes. come back and pay debt. It then seems a little risky. It How do you is. think about that? So I will say that, that like, I, that's why I got rid of the like terrible debt. So I would, you have to get rid of your credit card debt first. That comes before the business. Absolutely. But you see, I came back for the, I guess debt because that's the debt with the lower interest. So let's just say you invest in the business. It's two years, three years, four years, and you really don't see that it's going anywhere. Coming back for the, I guess debt it's not so bad. It doesn't mean you're not paying it all the time. Maybe you put your student loan to deferment. Maybe you're paying the minimum. So you're not neglecting the debt. One, the debt has lower interest, so it's not double digit figures. And two, you're either paying, like I said, the minimum or for putting in forbearance. So it doesn't mean that you're not going to take care of it. So if you find that the business doesn't take off, that debt will be there. It will have grown, but not have grown as fast as credit card debt will will have. But the fastest way to getting to the life that you want to me is to bet on yourself. So you know yourself. Are you really willing to do the work? People will tell me all the time, oh, Tiffany, I work hard. I'm like, yeah, but are you doing the work required? Working hard and the work required are two different Mm -hmm. things. You know, that there are times when the -hmm. work required is early morning, late night. And okay. But then there are some times when the work required is that you have this two hours and you're super focused. And so I was willing to bet on myself. And you're right. It's risky. But I don't know that there's anything riskier than betting on something externally. At least with me, I know. And we're, we're kind of living through that right now. A lot of people have lost their jobs. Yeah. Uh, does this, does this give you deja vu to back in yes. 2008? Yes. And you know, it's so crazy. I feel like, you know how people plan for the Olympics. It's like every eight years mm-hmm. and you know, you're like, how do people stay the course for that long? I am Olympic recessioner because I remember the last recession devastated me so much. I said, I will never, ever, ever come back to this place where I lose my job, my house, my hope, my happiness, my money. I had to drain my bank accounts to pay bills. I had to drain my retirement account to pay bills. I said, oh, never, ever, 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 ever. And so for the recession to come back around and meet me the way it's met me with not just one house paid off, not just two, but I also paid off my parents' house two years ago. And like my my husband and I, our cars are paid off. So it literally met me in that most ideal circumstance situation. So much so that I've actually done better in the recession than I have before that when you have set yourself up in a certain way that you can actually thrive during most other people's difficult times because money doesn't just combust it goes from one place to the next so if a mass amount of people are losing money it means that there's another group of people who are then gaining that money Mm -hmm. and so like so if you find yourself 
in this recession, like, wow, this really took me for a loop. It took me as well. And recessions come around every 10 to 15 years or so. So it's coming back. How will it meet you? Once you survive past this, what are you going to put into place? So when it comes back around, you're on the other side, you're on the receiving end versus the losing end. I've got to drill into this a little bit more because, you know, you said if you feel hardship coming on, maybe it's your job, maybe it's something else, look at your debt and reorganize it. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that in this moment, as we're kind of going through this uncertain time, these quote unquote unprecedented times, (laughs) you know, is there anything else that you're telling people, here's another step that I would be taking? So yes, I, I want you to one, forgive yourself. I know it sounds weird, like from a financial, like whatever person, but I already know that you're beating yourself up. You're telling yourself like, oh my gosh, I should have done this. And that time I had sushi, uh, I could have stayed home more or whatever it is. Those times are gone. I can't tell you how many times I added up lunch in my head. I'm like, oh, this would have been rent, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's done and it's okay. You're human. And I'm sorry. I never heard of coronavirus until recently. How do, I've never been through a pandemic. The last time we had one was 100 years ago. I'm not 140. So how would I have known, right? So one, forgiving yourself and letting that go and letting go of that, that shame and fear and saying, I want you to work on what I call being a paper towel person. So as much as I love my dad, he is not a paper towel person. That means when I spilled juice as a kid, you were going to get fussed at. <gasps> Juice again, Tiffany, you are so clumsy. Tiffany, you have to be careful. We don't, it's five kids. We don't have extra juice money, right? And my mom would just get up and calmly get a paper towel. She was a solution-based person. And so I really practiced because I'm more like my dad. I'm totally like, Tiffany, you messed up. We talked about this. What are you doing? So I'm, I really work hard to try to be a paper towel person and get straight to the solutions. Because guess what? After my dad finishes fussing, he would still have to get me a paper towel. So mm-hmm. even after all the fussing, you still have to get to the solution. It's like the same solution, but doubling down on your like pain. <laughs> exactly. So get straight to it. Right. So that's one I would say for, for folks who are in that position now is that you have to switch that mindset from one of blame to one of responsibility. So responsibility is blame minus the shame. So it's like I'm taking ownership of this thing, but I'm not ashamed of this thing. So that's first and foremost. Second, yes, certainly looking at your debt and reorganizing it. Third, you might need to drop down and get your noodle on. Remember college or whenever that at some point, Mm -hmm. everyone had to live on a ramen noodle budget, right? So for you, it might be rice and beans. It might be peanut butter and jelly. It might be whatever, but that super cheap meal that most young people can afford, right? And so what that means is to look at your budget and say, what are the things here that if I was on a ramen noodle budget, I would take off. And it doesn't mean you have to live there, but everyone should know their noodle budget, So that's your budget with just the bare bones, essential expenses. So knowing what that is and depending on when you think that trauma is coming, if you know it's going to come in a month or two, most jobs give you a heads up these days. And so, you know, if it's coming in a month or two, drop down and get your noodle on and start stacking as much savings as possible. And for some people, it's like that's not even enough. And then that's when you have to make the what I call the health and safety decision. And that's where I was 10 years ago and during the last recession where I had to look at my budget and said, what things here must I, do I have to have to maintain my health and my safety? Everything else is just not going to get paid. I'm sorry, Verizon. You're going to just be mad. Like, you know, so I have to pay rent because it, it takes care of my health and my safety. I have to buy medicine, takes care of my health and my safety. There are some things that literally, which was so hard to say, they're not going to get their money right now. So depending on where you are, you might be in a health and safety space where 
things are going to have to be late. Okay. You might be in a noodle budget space where I can drop down low enough where even though I'm making less, I can still maintain my basic bare bones essentials. Okay. Or you might be in a space where I am now where, you know, you, you've actually have an, an influx. So now it's for me, it's doubling down on investing even more and doing even more to solidify my future. After a quick break, Tiffany and I talk about short-term savings and planning for retirement as a creative. And a little bit later, we walk through the major milestones for her in moving past debt freedom and into wealth through her business. Trust me, you'll want to stick around and we'll be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back to Creative Elements and my conversation with Tiffany, the budget nista Alice. Before I dive deeper into Tiffany's own journey with the budget nista, I wanted to use this opportunity to ask her a few questions, both about saving in the short term and for retirement. So the purpose of budgeting is so you can save. The purpose of saving is so you can invest. The purpose of investing is to grow well. Some people get stuck. They're like, oh, I'm budgeting for budgeting's sake. No, you're budgeting so you can save. Oh, I'm saving for saving's sake. No, you're saving so you can invest. You're investing to grow wealth and to secure your future. That is the order of things, right? Or ought to be. So when it comes to saving for retirement or setting aside investing for retirement is one, you want to get your budget to a space where you can consistently save. Then you want to save, especially as a creative, six months to a year of emergency savings. So a noodle budget savings. So if your life costs you $5,000 a month, but your noodle budget is $3,000, because you know, you're like, oh, I don't really have to have all these things. If things got tight, then you're going to save three times six, $18,000 at minimum, especially as a creative, more if you can. Once you've done your at least six months, as like I said, as a creative, now any excess savings goes toward investing. So we're going to, when it comes to investing, first, we're going to secure your financial future and invest for retirement because there's two levels of investing for me anyway, investing for retirement and investing for wealth, right? For investing for retirement is to take care of your older self. I even named my older self. Her name is Wanda. Wanda <laughs> is sassy, right? And sometimes Wanda is in a, in a rocking chair in the front of her front, her front porch. And sometimes Wanda is peeking out the window, minding her neighbor's business, right? And so um, I think about Wanda when I make these choices. So I look after my Wanda and and so that's the, that's the next order after you've maxed out your six month saving, then that extra money goes toward setting aside for your Wanda. And what I would suggest is, is that you look for, depending on what, you know, people sometimes will say they're self-employed, but they really work for their company. So like I'm an employee of my company. So you're going to want to make sure whether it's a solo IRA, you know, you, you're like literally like a solo entrepreneur, maybe you're looking for a set, a set because you are self-employed. It might be a traditional IRA or a Roth IRA. You want to set aside money in a retirement account that is tax advantage, like in some sort of way, whether you don't get taxed on the front end or you don't get taxed on the back end, you want to max out your tax advantage options first. And I like uh, mutual funds, index funds in particular, 
because there are two types of mutual funds. There are there are actively managed mutual funds. So that's when like there's literally a person who is like picking the stocks and they're trying to beat the market. Right. And then there's passively managed mutual funds, which, which really are just called index funds. And an index fund is literally not trying to beat the market. It's just trying to mimic the market. And you might say, well, duh, I want to beat the market. I'm going to rock out with the actively managed mutual funds. Not so fast because there's a higher fee associated because you have to pay that person who's doing all the active management, whereas with an, uh, a passively managed index fund, you know, there's it's just a computer system mimicking a specific market. So like S&P 500, Dow, uh, Dow Jones. And so um, so that's what you're going to look for. I, I, I suggest that you're looking for a an index fund that mimics the market. You can get either a some people like a total market index fund. That's literally all the stocks, big or small. Or you can get a fund that mimics a particular market like the S&P 500, the top 500 companies. So a lot of financial experts will say to start with the S&P 500, the top 500 companies in the United States. So that just means you're going to put your money into this index fund. You can put like, you know, whatever amount of money every single month. And it's just going to do what the market does. As the market goes up, your money goes up. As the market goes down, your money goes down. And you might think, well, I don't want it to go down. But you have to understand that the market will go up and down, but overall it goes up over time. And so on average, the last hundred years, the market has seen on average a 10% increase year after year. So not that this year we're going to see a 10% increase. It means that some years the increase is 30%, some years the decrease is negative 20%. But if we average that all together, it's 10% a year. That's a really good return. You know, so if you put your money in a mutual fund, index fund, S&P 500 or total market fund, you're likely to yield by the time you are ready to retire. Whatever money you put in, you know, you're likely to yield 10 percent on that money. I, I, I tell people to be conservative, to say really seven to eight percent, I guess, technically speaking, 10 percent. So that's what I would start with as far as my retirement account. And then if you've maxed out your your tax benefit retirement account, then you can start investing for wealth in a, um, it's a non-tax advantage account. And that's, it really, those are just brokerage accounts. So you might want to start investing in individual stocks. You might use like a Robinhood app, or you might use like a, like a Vanguard or Charles Schwab, or you might want to purchase ETF. So an ETF is like if a mutual fund, which is a basket of stocks and bonds and, and, and financial instruments and a stock had a baby, because a mutual fund, you can't trade on the stock market and a stock is just one company, not a basket. That's an ETF. Is that those two had a baby, an ETF is a basket that's traded. Hmm. Um, so, but I tell people, if you don't know how to do anything else, get yourself an index fund, put your money in there every month and let it do what the market does and you'll be better than most people. I want to clarify a couple of things real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them being, you said, save your six months of a ramen noodle budget. Mm-hmm. Are you just saying putting that into like a regular old savings account in a bank or under a mattress somewhere? Yeah. So I say, I mean, a savings account, I mean, even though it doesn't seem ideal, I say savings account in an online only bank right now, everybody's bank's um, um, interest that they're paying is trash, Um, but it won't always be so bad, hopefully. But even though you're not making any money on that savings, that's not the purpose of that money. The purpose of that money is times like now. Mm -hmm. It's, ah, that's my job. Everything is Mm -hmm. going to hell. It's like, oh my God, I've got six months to figure it out. That's what that's for. You know, and then after that, then yes, if you, you can outpace whatever loss you're, you're getting in savings by investing your money with the excess. 
And the other thing I wanted to clarify, you mentioned some people say they're self-employed, but they're actually employed by their company. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the point of clarification there, if you're self-employed, usually that's like a single member LLC, right? Mm-hmm. And when you're employed, you're talking about probably an S corp or a C corp. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so like, mm-hmm. so just because I remember I made that mistake where I was actually still contributing to my SEP for that's for self-employed people because we're so used to saying, oh, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm, but I had already switched my company over to an S corp. So I was still contributing to a a retirement uh, vehicle that I was no longer eligible for because mm-hmm. I am now Tiffany works for the budgetista. I'm not just the budgetista anymore. And so I was like, yikes. So we have to fix that. So I just want you to make that distinction that if you have an LLC and it's not a, a corporation, then you are self-employed. But once you become, you know, have an uh, S corp or C corp, um, then you actually work for your company, and and you can't, you won't be eligible for certain um, retirement vehicles. The the question of SEP has come up a lot because a lot of people that are my clients or my listeners, they're LLCs, and they're saying, well, should I do the SEP or should I do an IRA? Do you have any real quick ways of even just thinking about how they should think about that? So I would say the benefit of a SEP is you are allowed to, I can't remember how much you can do now, but you can put in so much more money than a traditional or a Roth IRA. Like a Roth right now is like, um, I think it's $6,000 for the year. But with a SEP, I can't remember the amount, but it's like, it's a significant amount of money, 20, 24,000, oh, don't quote me on it, but significantly more than what you could put in a, a traditional or a Roth IRA. And the reason is because the government recognizes that you as a self-employed person are taking a huge risk with your future. So they're giving you the opportunity to set aside uh, because they, they know that most entrepreneurs don't last. So they're giving you this opportunity to set aside a significant amount of money. The rule of thumb is not to hire full time like a financial planner advisor unless you have $250,000 of investable assets. And this is because the cost to do so is going to erode any earnings or gains that you get with them, right? So, but it doesn't mean that there are people that you can hire to ask questions of. So there are financial planners who might work for like hourly. Um, it might be $100, $150 to ask these questions like, hey, I've got five or six questions. I want to bang them out. It's worth that. You might spend, say, two, $300 a year getting your questions answered. So that way you can make those decisions yourself. Now that I've gotten a lot of my general personal finance questions answered, I want to dig in deeper to Tiffany's own story. She's come a long way from being in debt and teaching preschool classes. So how does she build her business and the budget Nista brand? I was doing a lot of volunteer work um, when I was unemployed, so I didn't have to be home and hear my parents' mouth. Um, so I was like, um, I, I'm leaving. No, no, volunteering today. I can't stay for another lecture. <laughs> so I did a lot of volunteer work. And in so doing, I collected a lot of emails because, you know, like I would see someone post, so looking for volunteers for the YWCA or YMCA or whatever. So I would reach out and then you'd, you'd email with the, like, with the organizer so I collected those emails over time. And when I was starting the Budget Nista, I had reached out to my mentor, Christine Love. And she um, she had one of the very first nonprofits in Newark, New Jersey, where I lived, that had garnered like a million dollars worth of grants. She was like a superstar to me. And so I reached out to her, was like, how can I you know, move to the next level with the Budget Nista? And she was like, you should get grants, so you should get contracts. And I said, okay, but that was the only advice she gave me. She literally said, gotta go. 
you know, figure it out. And I was like, what? Okay. So I, I was, I thought to myself, well, how do you get contracts? And I started thinking of different organizations. And I said, you know, I have emails from all these organizations over the last two years that I volunteered for. Let me just reach out to them. Cause many of them, even though I wasn't volunteering in the financial space, they still knew me. Volunteering is such a great way, one, to figure out what you want to do, two, to make connections because people meet you in the best case scenario. They meet you at your best. You're serving, you're giving, you know? And so, you know, I reached out, I think I had 50 emails. I reached out and was like, Hey, it's me, Tiffany, you know, volunteer from whenever I'm teaching financial education now. And I would love to see how, if there's some synergy with your organization and of the 50, only the United Way wrote back. And I remember her name was Catherine Wilson, who I just was hanging out with yesterday. We're still friends like 10 years later. And she wrote back, oh, Brooke, who used to work here, who you're emailing no longer works here. I was like, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, well, can I meet you? And she was like, sure. And so we met up and what I didn't know is it was her first first week in a new job. She was a data data analyst before that. And she had just become the new community director. And her job was to have the United Way be in the community more. So it was like perfect timing. So imagine if you just don't ask. If you don't ask, the answer is always no. And so it grew from there and I, I got my first contract. And if you do ask, you get told no 98% of the time mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter. <laughs> exactly. Because that that one contract, what I didn't understand is that the United Way was such a well-known name. Of course, I'd heard of it, but I didn't know that it carried a lot of weight because it's almost like the United Way says that you're legitimate. This is like an international nonprofit that's been around for how many years? So then other organizations were like, oh, you work with the United Way. Well, yeah, we'd love for you to work with us. And I was like, really? So you just don't know what door is going to be the thing that opens up the rest of the doors. And for me, it was definitely the United Way. And it allowed me to meet the community because I was able to now share on social, hey, come take my free classes and it was really the cornerstone for the rest of the budget needs to business with building this amazing community. But it started with, with the United Way and, and, and that contract. I love what you're saying about volunteering as a way of figuring out what you like to do. Mm-hmm. Um, it strikes me, I've never thought about this before, creating content and creating resources for free, doing things online yes. is essentially volunteering. It's, yeah. it's a great way to serve and to learn like, do I like doing this? Because yes. you're not going to get paid a lot in the beginning. Yes. And honestly, too, what you don't like, there were so many things that, like I say, I, I stumbled and bumbled my way to success. So after the United Way, I like, so I remember the first class, it was like five people in it. I said, uh oh, this is not looking good. So I reached, I said, Catherine, can I like advertise on social media? Not even advertise, because there was no such thing as business Facebook. But I just said, can I post so I can get people to come? Because what I was really thinking is, if not enough people show up to these classes, I'm not going to get the contract next, you know, next go round. And she was like, sure. So I started posting on social Facebook in particular, like, hey, come to my free classes. And after like the cohort would be about six weeks. So I would teach a class every Tuesday for six weeks. And then I would get more people for the next class. After a while, people started reaching out to me that didn't live in New Jersey or New York or the surrounding areas. And I live in Florida. I live in Connecticut. And I was like, well, I don't teach in Florida, Connecticut. And that's when the light bulb went on. And I said, well, what if I can take this class, this six week series I created for the United Way and take it online to extend the service? And so I did. And I created something called the Live Richard Challenge, which changed the trajectory of like the budgetista. And my goal, my role and my goal was in my my first year in uh, 2015, when I rolled it out, that I wanted to get 10,000 women signed up. 
And it took me all year to convince like posting every single day, posting the link to get 10,000 women signed up for this thing I was giving away for free. All my financial friends and all my business friends said I was a fool because they're like, it doesn't make, you're not making any money. And I thought, well, maybe I'll do the first one. And then after that, I'll try to get sponsorship. So I rolled it out and I remember right before it was, it was December and someone said, is there going to be a corresponding book? And I was like, well, why would you want to get a book that costs money when the challenge is free? Because hello, Tiffany, do you want to make, you want to make money? I couldn't believe I even said that, you know? And so um, I was like, okay. So I, I got some young college student to take, cause the challenge was an email course and a blog course where it was a 36 days. And every day I would put a full blog post explaining what today's homework was and how to achieve it. The first one was every week had its own theme. Week one was budgeting. Week two was savings. Week three was credit, then debt, then insurance and investing. And so every day was related to that week's theme of like, do this, do this, do this, do this in order. So I was very teacher Tiffany. And he took all my blog posts, put it in a book. I put it up on Amazon and my first book, the one week budget. I mean, now it's sold tens and tens of thousands of copies, but by then it had sold like nothing. My first book took two and a half years to get on the Amazon's bestsellers list. My second book, the literature challenge book, the one that was attached to the free challenge took two and a half days. Amazing. I couldn't believe it. And I was like, and what I made, because the challenge cost me about 10,000. I don't even know where I found the money. It was just like 200 here, 100 here. And it cost me, if I added it all up, about $10,000 to build the literature challenge. And that first month in, in January, I sold $10,000 worth of books. Amazing. And I was like, we're in business. <laughs> Something that's evident from Tiffany's website and social media accounts is the amount of press attention that she's gotten over the years and continues to receive. As I shared in the beginning, I first found Tiffany through Queer Eye, but she's been featured on Good Morning America, The Today Show, The Real, and a lot more. So I wondered how much of that was intentional on her part or just good fortune. So I'll say this, that um, I was very intentional in the beginning with PR. So I joined something called Harrow, Help a Reporter Out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was on my home. I used to have a list of homework that I would give myself every day. You have to do this. You have to do this. And Harrow was one of them. I would go on that site. I would, they would email me like, you know, 10,000 emails a day. If you ever sign up for Harrow, get a separate account, 10,000 emails a day. But I would tell myself that I would have to answer the email within the first half an hour. You might as well just leave it because the reporter after that is inundated with emails, right? So I was very, especially the first year or two, I was really intentional because I assumed that more press meant more money. It does not. What more press means is that you can charge more. I didn't really, I thought that press was going to, I have, I've only seen once or twice and it's not been traditional press where I have done a thing and seen an uptick in sales. And it was like a really popular podcast. It wasn't like the real, it wasn't, um, a queer eye, none of that moves the needle for sales. But what it does is it allows you to be more of an authority. And when you can say, I am the premier expert in dot, 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 you can charge differently. So that's what I've seen. The benefit of press is, is that press begets more press. Press gets your um, face out there. It, it builds trust. It builds expertise. It doesn't necessarily, for me anyway, I haven't seen it drive a tremendous amount of sales, but it has definitely allowed me to charge more for the things that I do. Can you actually just walk through from 2015 when you had this first challenge up to today, mm -hmm. some of the milestone moments or like major learnings in getting to this point with the budget Nisa? So um, the challenge was the first one. And then I said, after that, I wasn't going to automate it. I just thought, oh, it's done. And someone said, can you automate it? Because I missed it. 
So 10,000 people signed up in by January 2015. By the end of 2015, 20,000 people had signed up through the automation. And then the books were just selling automatically because I learned to then go in and put like, if you want the book, you can get it here. You don't have to, but if you can get it here. So all of a sudden now I'm making a few thousand dollars a month in book sales from something that I'm giving away for free. Wild. And I didn't even have to do much advertising because the people who took it were telling for me. They're like, this is amazing thing. Mom, dad, cousin, sister, brother. And then I learned. So another pivotal moment was when I learned about affiliate marketing. I'd never really heard of it. But in the first literature challenge, there was a bank that I particularly liked, Ally Bank. And I was telling people, you know, this is the savings account that I really like. And I didn't know. But at the time, Ally Bank was giving you $25 per person that you signed up. So, you know, I cried when I realized that 2,500 people had signed up and it was $75,000 oh, that I missed out on. for me. I didn't want to do the math. I know. I was like, yo, when I tell you thug tears, I cried. And, um, and so, I mean, that was like more than I made, like, in, like, you know, in two years as a teacher. But I learned that lesson and then I started to put affiliate links and the things that I was always ta- already talking about inside the Live Richer Challenge. So that was that affiliate money was like another like, uh-huh. So what I was learning to do was to monetize the service, right? So it's free for you to take this thing that I'm doing, but I'm going to tack on if you'd like the corresponding book, great. But if you also sign up for this app or this resource or this whatever, okay, great. How else can I monetize the service? And so that's when I realized like, okay, I can also do speaking engagements. So colleges started to reach out. Another aha moment is when I realized that Colleges are a great place if you're creative to to pitch your proposal, because the way it works is that colleges um, figure out their their. And I learned this from like a 17 year old who was like junior class president. They figure out their budget in the beginning of the year, then they give it to the kids. So if I'm going to speak at a high school, it's like they start the process of figuring out the budget then. But if I'm going to speak at a college, the hard work is already done. And it's a 17 year old that's making a decision whether or not to pay you ten thousand dollars. I'll take my bets with the 17 year old. (laughs) And so I started to hit the college circuit because it was all these like clubs that had all this money that they could decide whatever they wanted. They had like, of course, like a student or teacher advisor. But for the most part, they got to decide. So that was enough. Another pivotal. Huh? How else can you because at my core, I'm a teacher. So a pivotal moment is how many different ways can I teach? I could teach through books. I could teach through these challenges. I could teach on stage. I could teach. So then I remember learning like, huh, I know how to write curriculum. My master's was in education. And that's one of the things we learned. So I started to write curriculum and I wrote curriculum for NASDAQ, for example, and curriculum for other schools. That was a big lump sum of money. So what, what I was learning along the way was how to monetize the thing that I did best, which is service and teaching. And so huge pivotal moment was when I, I connected with um, my now business partner, and he's like, I love what you're doing. And I don't recommend business partners for everyone, but it was such a good fit in that we were on the same page and he brought something to the table that I didn't. He was an excellent marketer. And that's when digital marketing was really starting to take off. So I said, I don't want to give you a piece of my business, the budgetista, because that's my baby. But what if we start a side business? And we did. And we started something called my Live Richer Academy. And that's because everyone was going through my challenges, which were free, and they wanted the next level because my challenges were basic financial education for free. But they wanted to learn how to invest or get real estate or estate plan or retirement. So I got my financial friends to teach inside my online school. And at first, I remember it was um, 10 bucks a month and now 30 bucks a month for the online school. We have 40,000 students and we make like a million bucks a month. That's crazy. 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 Yes. I mean, and I mean, 30 bucks a month, 
top for all this access. But do you see how I built from, hey, I'm doing these in-person, like one-on-ones, you know? So that's how it looks at first in the beginning. You're like, you know, hand-to-hand, one-on-one. Then one to few, that's me inside of a, in front of a classroom, right? Then one to many, that's me on stage at a college or, or church or whatever, right? Then one to infinite, that's you online because there's like, there's no amount of this. I mean, and so like I learned to take that same skill set and multiply it again and again and again. And now, now you'll reach a certain level that where you have built trust with your audience that you can roll out other things. So for example, I just recently launched my first children's book to teach children age appropriate financial education because I wrote a law in New Jersey helping to make financial education mandatory for middle school students in New Jersey, because we already had a law for high school. So I wrote this children's book called Happy Birthday, Molly Moore, right? And so within the first month and a half, we sold 10,000 books, you know? But that's because of years and years and years and years and years and years of trust built up. That's from that one-on-one. Years of service. Exactly. And so when you do that, there's very few things that I can roll out. Like I, there was a brand that reached out to me they said, hey, Tiffany, we're giving away free financial workup of all the things that you need to do, right? And so I just did it. So I signed up for their thing for free. I took it. It was very similar to what I just paid my financial advisor $1,200 for. So I was like, oh, this is awesome. Sent out an email to my email list. So e- collecting email along the way is essential. I, you can have zero people on social and have a, a decent email list and have a million dollar business. So I've been collecting emails along the way all this time. And so I, I signed up for that financial plan and, you know, I was like, wow, this, this free one is exactly what I got from my financial advisor for $1,200. So I wrote to my email list and said, Hey, here's a company that reached out to me. They want you to sign up for a financial plan. Cause I'm sure they wanted to like, they wanted to then, you know, you could pay if you wanted to sequence and then exactly. sell them. And yeah, yes. Which is, but and I'm always honest with my audience, like, you know, send it to your spam, whatever. But the truth is I just got something that I just paid $1,200 for get it while it's hot. So I didn't think anything of it. They paid us $25 a person. Within three days, Jay, we made $130,000. Unbelievable. I couldn't even believe it. I was like, wait, what? Literally, the company called me and said, please turn it off. I'm like, turn it <laughs> off. They were like, we're, they were like you spent our, our year's budget on marketing in three days. And I'm like, oh I can't turn God. it off. It's an email. And so after that, because of that, they, we built a deeper relationship. They're like, we're going to create a special relationship with you that we don't do with any other influencer. I always call it that the Jordan relationship, right? Jordan comes to Nike. He doesn't just say, oh, I wear these shoes. He, they create a new relationship where he has his own shoe, his own brand within Nike. But that only comes with, look how many years of putting in the work, of service, 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 of consistency, of teaching. And so now I know I can confidently, I've done this over and over again, where I've done partnerships with friends, where I'm like, hey, you've got this really great service. We'll do the marketing, which is just a set of emails and some social posts and things like that. We'll do a few lives. I mean, last time we did that, $250,000 made in, in three or four days. And a friend who has never made six figures in a year is now making six figures in a, in a weekend, you know? Really but cool. so, but that's all possible because I don't think there's anything extra special about me other than I am consistent day in, day out, day in, day out. I call it my daily deposits. Are you depositing daily into your dreams? So whether that's thinking about it, it might be a Google search, it might be a book to read, it might be a podcast. Are you depositing daily into your dreams? If you do so, I'm not promising you're going to have some seven, eight figure year business, but what I am promising is that you are going to be in a different space than you were before. Because the rule is if you plant, you will reap. 
So people think now, like, oh my gosh, Tiffany, like, you know, you're what a hundred thousand dollars in a weekend. That sounds crazy. No, that was a seed that I planted 10 years ago. So now, yes, I planted an, an, an acorn and now I have this huge oak tree that I can shake at any moment and knock down 10,000, 100,000 acorns. But it was 10 years to plant that tree, to look after it. And so it's not going to take 10 years for everyone, but it's going to take consistent planting if you're going to want to reap. Stories like Tiffany's are so inspiring. You watch a TV show on Netflix and you see someone who seems to have it all figured out. And then you realize, oh, she was just getting started just like me not that long ago. And to go from being the victim of a financial scam to helping more than a million people with their own financial situations is just an incredible story. This episode really reinforced a few things for me. First, the value of serving others first. Sure, Tiffany missed out on $75,000 in affiliate fees, but that's because she was so focused on serving others that she missed it. And that's why this all worked in the first place. And second, this is just another creator in a long list of creators who have told us about the value of an email list and affiliate marketing. If you want to learn more about Tiffany's work, you can visit thebudgetnista.com or follow her on Instagram at thebudgetnista. Links to both are in the show notes. Thanks to Tiffany for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for this episode. Thanks to Brian Skeel for mixing the show and also creating our music. If you like this episode, you can tweet at me at jklaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way. Please, please, please go ahead and do that. Thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you next week. Sonic Universe.